0: Breaking the Cycle to Step Forward. Authentic conversations from lived experience and a professional perspective in overcoming abuse with Chris Tuck and Beverly Ann. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Breaking the Cycle to Step Forward podcast with myself, Chris Tuck, and. Hello, I'm Beverly Ann. And we are joined today by the lovely Rachel W on our guest episode. And we are going to be doing everything Rachel W today. So we're going to ask her about her life, about her work and just really getting into the nitty gritty of things, because we love to hear other people's lived experiences and what they are doing different to what we do. So we love to hear all of this. So, Beverly, have you got anything to say before we let Rachel talk about herself
1: oh i'm just eager to get into the conversation because obviously we met up with rachel and we couldn't stop talking all of us um and that was what is so good about coming onto the podcast so no over to you chris and rachel and i'll just put my hand up and ask questions every so often
0: lovely rachel w welcome and thank you for um taking part today do you want to tell everybody a little bit about yourself please
2: yeah lovely um so it's lovely to meet you both it was uh, the last time when i saw you and to be asked to come along and say a couple of things that's fantastic what i will say to start is i might stumble and i might stutter and i do that because i've had a lot of trauma and i'm only just starting to Get to grips with my story, as in saying it out aloud for the public domain. So, uh, I mean, I'm I'm lived experience of being in care, foster care, kids homes, uh, lived experience of child sexual exploitation, and every possible abuse you can imagine. I, I would imagine, um, not that I want you to imagine it, to be honest with you. Yeah. Uh, so. I've got that experience of, you know, basically going into care when I was 14. uh, And then the the lived experience of being in care, a care leaver. And then 29 years of working with young people and children who are under child protection or safeguarding in education or in care settings. I've got a wealth of experience oh and And that
0: that just blows my mind rachel because you've obviously gone through horrific stuff in the family home then got into the care system gone through more horrific stuff yet here you are working in that domain working with vulnerable children and that is just what the magic of those of us that have gone through stuff that turn it around and go back and support those that are still going through the similar stuff that we've been through.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I, I class myself as nothing short of miraculous. You know, I'm, I'm not talking religious in any way. Uh, yeah. Not that there's anything wrong with that. More, more down a spiritual line of things, you know, at the end of the day where I come from, I should have been dead you know, and countless times Mm. I nearly was, um, very borderline. And so one of the things that I'd always promised myself is if I managed to survive and if I managed to get out alive, that I would take my experiences and I would put them to good use because some kids didn't get out. So, Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: And I think that's what we need to remember is that, you know, we talk about child sexual abuse and exploitation and the horror of it all. But there are literally some victim and survivors that don't make it. and yeah, it's it's hard. And people don't realize that. They don't realize the actual impact of going through abuse. They just don't get it.
2: Yeah, it's not like, um, I was having a conversation about this the other day about disclosing and um, young people disclosing abuse that might have happened or has happened to them. and having this conversation, it made me realise, well, I mean, I've already realised it, to be honest with you, but there's a lot of kids that haven't got the ability to say something out aloud. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a lot of kids that may not even get to the point of of surviving it, you know, whether that's not actually physically surviving or not actually mentally surviving and, you know, in a way this is why I feel like it's my purpose like I'm not sharing it and I don't want to talk about my experiences just for the sake of talking about it you know it's to put it to good purpose so that other young people and kids don't have to experience or if they do experience what I've experienced to help them find a way out you know
0: yeah Yeah Yeah. so obviously you've gone through the care system and Beverly's gone through the care system as well so are there any questions that you want to ask at this point in time Beverly regarding that or experiences shared maybe that will help listeners?
1: Yeah one of the things I've always been intrigued at um Rachel is you know I went into care at four and for me going into care was a different um experience so it's it gave me a safe haven. The difference was I was sent back to my abuser regularly because it was the family, etc. So for me, as it, it was scary as we approached the children's home, but for me, very quickly changed. And I remember being a teenager going back into care and being sad the first night and then thinking, well, OK, I'm going to be safe now. So, just I'm tr- intrigued to understand how that how that came about for you going back into care. Was it something that happened quickly?
2: Was it something you asked? What What was the process? It, I mean, I, that's a really good question, and I'm thinking about it. So, um, I probably should have gone into care at the age of nine, where I had a incident related trauma, so an abuse related trauma that I had to go and have. Uh, an emergency operation on, and and I ended up in school, and the school nurse kind of did a once-over, looking at me. I didn't have a clue what was going on. I, you know, really didn't know. And um, I went home that night and uh, or that day, and that social workers were there in front of the perpetrator and asked me if I was being harmed. Um, I used this as a training tool yeah. to help people understand on what not to do. Um, You know, and I often wonder, were they scared of him? Um, What was it that made them back off so quickly? Um, But at the end of the day, it was the way that it went, you know. And so I then had uh, five more years of abuse, which got worse and worse, you know, and it wasn't just me being abused. And... um, and then it was me that disclosed in the end, I, I'd had enough. I'd had a moment of, of uh, uh, you know, education was pretty bad. And they sent me home with a report card because I bumped off to get drunk. Uh, drinking was definitely a strategy mm. to to survive. And thank God I did, because I think that's probably why my brain's fairly intact. <laughs> yeah. You know, I'll say fairly. <laughs> um. So I went into care officially at 14, but because of uh, the financial constraints of social services, they kept me as accommodated, which meant that wherever I moved, my abusers knew where I was. So 13 foster homes and three kids homes later, you know, um, there was only one place where, like thinking about what you've just said there was only one place where I actually felt like I was safe unfortunately I was safe from the perpetrators but I wasn't safe from a member of staff there um, which took me a long time to get my head around but you know in the grand scheme of things at that time there were bigger fish to fry and so I was glad that I was where I was in a kids home that was kind of like a semi secure unit because so that's the only place where they felt they could keep me safe after the court hearing. So, so it was like um, I describe it going into care when they finally uh, figured out that I was not going to be safe anywhere mm. until I was under their care, and uh, I I kind of liken it to being under witness protection where my name changed and I wasn't able to be in contact with anybody, any family, any friends. It was like a complete cut off of my entire life. And in a way, I think that was one of the best decisions the social services and the courts ever made for me. So I'm kind of feeling quite grateful for that. But I've not been able to speak publicly due to it, you know, I mean, I'm in my 40s. I've not been able to speak publicly up until very recently because it's only been recently that the risk has heavily reduced. So there's still an element of risk, Mm -hmm. a level of risk, but not anywhere near what it was. So safety, I think, has only recently become a word of mine. Uh, in a, in the same way as freedom, so Ooh. freedom has only been a recent thing that I've been afforded, whereas, a, you know, a lot of people have that, and I'm so glad they do, you know, genuinely. Um, for me, this ability to speak out has only come as a result of the reduced risks. So, yeah, I never really felt safe in care. Um It was certainly an interesting experience (laughs) yes (laughs)
1: yes and i and i can hear what you're saying as well because i was lucky i didn't get further abused in care but that's not saying that that everyone was safe um so i i do hear that and that's something it comes as a double-edged sword and i also heard what you were saying that you still felt relatively safe and i understand stand that too because you weren't with with some of your abusers because obviously it continued in a different way the shocking thing always is how many foster places you were in and the number of times you were moved in such a short space and that goes for yourself and anybody else listening so um you know very much hear that and align with that and thank you for sharing that So Chris do you want to ask the next question?
0: Yeah I just wanted to go back a bit Rachel and you can like say you don't want to answer or do want to answer and however you want to answer that. Um, So reading between what you've said to us already your family home life was abusive you went into care because of that Um, but the the abuse was so severe that you was literally put into your words witness protection and that protection has only or the risk rather has only just reduced recently can you are you able to tell us how that risk has reduced did someone die so that they're not a risk to you anymore or or what what is it is it a legal thing that allows the risk to be lessened I'm just a bit intrigued and
2: nosy (laughs) good question you know what I actually I like intrigued and nosy and I like curiosity I embrace it you know I wish that there were adults out there that had that level of curiosity and wanted to hear it you know because there's a lot that can be learned from it isn't there you know absolutely and um so the when I talk about the levels of risk being reduced. I'm talking about the main perpetrator of uh, like a paedophile ring, I suppose. Mm. Oh, wow, okay. So that person has now universally been departed from, from us, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know? And I mean, don't get me wrong, like, there were many times over many years that I I thought that that could be a really good solution to my problems. Mm. You know, equally, I would never have wished for that or wanted yeah. for that because I'm not a bad person. Yeah. You know, and although I do believe that there's universal justice, which is pretty much the only justice that I have had. Um, I don't believe in all this eye for an eye and two for a tooth. tooth, for a tooth yeah. Yeah. You know, so I'm not like, oh, my God, I'm not dancing on his grave. Mm-hmm. Uh, but equally, I've got the relief of freedom. And that is enough for me. Definitely.
1: Yeah. And can I just <laughs> butt in there while I'm <laughs> doing this <that> anyway? <laughs> um, and Rachel, and, and just say, I hear what you're saying, but I will be very honest, as we are in these conversations. When I heard that my dad had died, the relief, because even though consciously I didn't know that he'd gone on to abuse as many other people as he did, subconsciously I knew he was a danger, that I hadn't spoken to anyone, you know, public or anything. And now I've heard about who he did. And there was some prevention um, prevention tactics that we put in place as well to ensure that younger members of the family we safe. So I have to say, I was really relieved, really relieved. And whilst I don't believe in an eye for an eye, um, and I don't necessarily believe in the death penalty, when it comes to
2: perpetrators, I get emotionally involved. (laughs) I love the way you've just put that. You know, I mean, obviously, it goes without saying in a way, but I'm sorry that all of that happened to you too. You know, because I know what that feels like. And although, like, and I also understand that feeling of relief, you know, and it isn't just in relation to my own freedom. But I think with the work that I did on myself, I managed to let go of particularly survivor guilt. I suffered horrifically with survivor guilt. It was actually worse than, than, than the PTSD. Um, and until I worked through that with within therapy and that, I didn't realise just how profound it was, you know, and just how much of an effect on my life it was having. And I think to start off with, sometimes the work that I would do would be as a result of survivor guilt, you know, like looking after kids, trying to get it right, busting a gut, you know, getting burnt out, all of that, because I've survived and I can do that. You know, and but then um, when I realized that there was nothing for me to feel shameful about or guil- guilty about, I could let go of all of that side mm. of things. But still, in relation to uh, justice and perpetrators, you know, and abusers, I still believe that they they need to be brought to justice, heavily brought to justice. Yeah, absolutely. And these silly sentences yeah.
0: that they're getting at the moment.
2: Yeah, I mean some of the sentences that I've heard are like um oh what is it mm-hmm. sexual that there's a a register that they go on. Yeah. Sexual offenders register, yeah. Yeah, so so they'll go on to that rather than actually going inside prison. It's just an absolute disaster. Well there's a you young know. man at twenty
1: one currently in Scotland that's been found guilty at the age of seventeen he raped a thirteen year old girl he got found guilty and the judges decreed that because he is under the age of 25, that he, he's not going to have a custodial sentence. And so it's he's nicer. got something like 230 hours community service. Yeah.
0: Can you believe that? No, can't believe it at all.
1: Yeah. But we won't take it away from your story, Rachel, but you know, no. we could go on all of us for another conversation
0: So going back to this survivor's guilt, Rachel, can you just for our listeners that don't understand this, or maybe have not worked it out in their heads for themselves yet about their own lived experience? What, what was that survivor guilt? Why did you, why did you feel it? And how did you deal with it? I know you dealt with it in therapy, but what specifically allowed you to let it go?
2: That's a massive question, you know.
0: I know. I'm full of them.
2: (laughs) 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 Again, I love it. (laughs) I'll do my best with that one. I mean, when I think about it, so so growing up, I thought that abuse was an immutable part of growing up. It was the way it was. It was normal. Everybody went through it. I didn't have a Scooby, you know. And then it was only when I did a sleepover over at a mate's when I was about. 13 maybe mm-hmm. because I was always prevented in doing stuff like that, but this one was unavoidable. And uh, you know, I kind of expected that I was going to get abused by her parents, you know, not that I knew it as abuse. Yeah. And when I asked, um, she was really shocked. Uh, like seeing somebody's reaction to the way that I was reacting was a real massive wake-up call. So I knew what was happening felt so wrong and so horrific mm-hmm. and absolutely terrifying, but I didn't know that it was wrong because I was told it was right. Yeah, yeah of course you would, yeah.
0: We told yeah, told
2: that so that hurts. that's a part of the conditioning. It, the conditioning was that ingrained mm-hmm. that there was no alternative thought than from what I was told. Yeah. So that was the way it was. It was immutable in the way of... And then when other people got hurt, I was blamed. Right. When I got hurt, other people were blamed. Yeah. You know, and just to, just to clarify, you know, I've never hurt any young person. Yeah. Um, But obviously that came up into question when I became a foster mom, you know, it, which yeah. was pretty mortifying, if I'm honest with you. Yeah. So back on Survivor Guilt, because I could go on that one for a while. Yeah, we'll ask you about that in a little while. <laughs> That's a whole separate podcast, that one. Yeah,
0: that will be, yeah.
2: <laughs>
0: I shall write it down for future.
2: <laughs> <laughs> future reference, absolutely. So when I came into care, and when they realised what was happening was horrifically horrendous, I can't think of any other words. Yeah. So when it was realised and acknowledged that what was happening was not okay and absolutely horrendous was when I realised the extent of how bad it was. When I realised how bad it was and how somehow I've got no idea how, but somehow I found the courage and the muster to basically tie myself to the deputy head teacher's desk and say, I can't move until I'm put somewhere where I'm going to be safe and I was black and blue and you know I'd been to hospital recently all of that kind of stuff and I had this massive gash on my leg that was probably needing stitches that I never had stitches for and it was pretty horrific and so I was kind of almost tied to the table and it was then that I realised that you know, I, I felt like it was my responsibility to help the other kids. Um and I did everything I possibly could. And I mean, disclosure in itself took six months of almost every day making police statements. Mm. And it was only towards the end of that that I realized that there was no chance that these kids were going to, you know, that a lot were put into care and in that, but not all you know and then there was evidence and then there was beyond reasonable doubt that came into question you know all of these kind of things there was evidence lost and so i then without realizing what it was called i then spent the you know the majority of my adult life to to fairly recently feeling like i was responsible for not being able to save those kids and uh, so that's my survivor guilt that's what I had and the only way I remember I, I had the most incredible therapist I worked with her funnily enough in one of the schools where I worked and I went to her one day and I says I'm having these really bad nightmares again and she asked me a few questions and she said oh <laughs> have you had PTSD I was like yeah I have and I think it's come back and She's like, yeah, I'll, I'll see if I can help you out, you know. And I says, well, I'm skint, obviously, because any money I earn seems to just go back and ploughs back into the kids and the system, and because uh, I'm a bit of a softie like that. <laughs> and uh, I'll learn. Anyway, um, so she came round, and I had a little chat with her, and she says, right, I'm going to help you out. And she says, we're not talking about six sessions, Rach. Right. We're talking about a minimum of two years, and it's going to be deep, and it's going to be really absolutely horrific. But you're not going the to be... horrific
0: bit. I'm not clapping the horrific <laughs> bit. I'm
2: clapping the the long term support. <laughs> yeah, and so ten years later, wow. ended, you know, and like I say, this woman is absolutely incredible. She saved my life. There's no doubt about it. You know, but <laughs> what she did as part of the process, I remember in early time saying how the hell am I ever going to be able to let go of any of this mm. you know I could talk about letting go of the fact I should have gone into care when I was nine mm-hmm. I could talk about how countless failings throughout with broken mm-hmm. bones and trauma injuries and all of that kind of stuff going on you know I was just the naughty kid in class but I wasn't mm. no. I was I was the traumatised kid in class. I was reacting. And um, I could go on and on and on. How am I supposed to let go of all of that? But the biggest deepest was how can I let go of the guilt that I feel towards the fact that some kids were still getting abused while I'm eating, you know, which is something that I wasn't allowed to do mostly, when I'm eating a dinner in a warm home with clothes that are clean. Yeah, you know and it was that and you know we it was quite a journey I mean it's up to you if you want me to go into that but it was absolutely stunning
1: the thing is the journey if you if you wish to share is your choice so as we've made it clear as a guest coming on what you share is always your choice and it's your boundary so and we can
0: always do a part two if we need to. If you feel like um, you want to concentrate on this now and then your professional work in part two, or whether you want to just, you know, breeze through this bit and then spend more time. So it's completely up to you.
2: We really don't mind. Well, I mean, I think it's, you know, so I instantly think, is it going to help anybody? And I think it could. This Absolutely. all helps. Yeah, like letting go of something so heinous is so yeah. hard. And yeah. and this was quite a journey within psychotherapy. Um, within the journey, there was a, a little book that the therapist bought me. Her name's Fred, by the way. You know, <laughs> I'll name her. She's amazing. Thank and, you, uh, Fred. <laughs> absolutely. We all need a be. Fred. everybody needs a thread there's no doubt about it um so she bought me this book and I think the book was called ways of letting go and in the book there was a padlock and there was a few keys attached Mm -hmm. to the padlock and we found creative ways because sitting down in an office one-to-one just chatting away would not have done it for me all the time some of the time that's what I needed but some of the time I needed to be out and about and doing and being kind of exposed to situations because of anxiety and PTSD. And I was in a right old pickle. So we had this book and through using this book, I won't go into too much detail on that because it's quite personal, but there was ways that I found of letting go by letting go of one of the keys.
1: Oh, that's a lovely story. And I absolutely hear you about doing it in ways that work for you because that's the one thing we keep saying is everybody needs to find their way that works for them.
2: Yeah, I really agree with that. I mean, when I think to date of being an an animal-assisted therapist, I think of how the the kids respond so well to being out and about, having a walk and a talk no eye contact for those that have got autism that don't like that wearing a baseball cap so they're less threatened there's so many things that can be considered that can be a tool to helping and supporting a young person or adult you know I don't really I only ever really deal with kids but I would imagine that the same applies to adults well it's applied to me I mean yeah <laughs> and, and it does apply to adults as as we all um as Chris and I
1: would um verify as well because we're still that young person inside the adult body which is important and even though we're seen as functioning people and we are functioning we still have to look after ourselves and I know that I like to always if I'm in a room I like to have a natural I like a window and if I'm doing any kind of personal therapy I need space to move around at times
2: yeah
0: so Rachel just to recap where we're at so we can move on to somewhere else we can always come back to any of this because it's all insightful and all helpful um your abuse within the family home within the care system you was highly impacted and a lot of that impact was clear to see in in what I'm hearing to many people around you and not enough was done to protect you that's what I've got in a snapshot so far the impact on you with the survivor guilt and I think lots of us have that survivor guilt Mm -hmm. just so that you don't feel like you are on your own because even within a family situation where there's siblings um, I had to leave when I was 16 and I left behind four other siblings and there's the survivor guilt there but if I didn't get out I would have done something that we would have all paid for And I'll leave that there. (laughs) I don't want to go into detail, but something would have happened if I hadn't have removed myself. Um, But that guilt was horrendous. And even Beverly, we've talked about this many times. We then go on to try and fix everything for everybody (laughs) because of that survivor guilt. Yes. And that's normal, unfortunately. But it's like it comes to a place in your life where you go, actually, haven't I paid my dues even though you didn't have dues to pay for in the first place, it comes to a point when you're like, actually, where's my peace? Where's my self-care? Where, where Where, is everybody for me? I've done all of that for everyone else. When is my time? And letting go of that survivor guilt is part of that journey of self-healing as well, I believe. Mm, um, absolutely. Absolutely. For me, though, moving on in your story, and if we jump too far ahead, then just pull us back. But how did you get into animal therapy? What was it that made you go down that route? And then can you share that journey with us? And then can you share um, that example that you shared with Beverly and I when we met up?
2: Yeah, I'll give it a go. Definitely. (laughs) It started when I decided I'd like to be a foster carer. So, in a same sex relationship, um, we'd gotten civil partners, we'd been together donkeys, and I decided, you know, well, together as a couple, we decided that this is what we'd really love to do. Do we have our own or do we out the system? And I was like, well, it's a no brainer, we out the system. Um, And there was a lot more thought that went into it, other than that, obviously. So, I sat with a social worker in my home, which was really incredible. Um, I had a bit of a history with social workers. I call it being a bit reactive, expressive, because they used to upset me so much. Yeah. But I learned quite a lot from being a foster mom, so that's good. Um, so the social worker was sitting on my sofa and was going through the assessment, and as part of the assessment, I needed to tell a bit of my story. And she didn't believe me. She found it really hard like there is no way that you have been through what you've been through and are a pretty formidable person just now you know with the work that you've done and achieved um all of that I'm gonna need to look at your files as a child in care and um <laughs> you know obviously the fear kicked in the hate the absolute terror the fog in the brain, you know, I've pretty much been living in denial of my past for a few years, um, thinking, oh, maybe it was just a really bad dream I had or something, you know. And um, so we we set out the boundaries to how she was going to discover that what I was saying was right without messing me up too much. Um, And apparently the person that looked into my files had a very sleepless night that night. So they came back, the lady came back, and she was like, oh, my God, I can't fucking believe it. So I've just walked. That's that's, okay.
0: We're not going to restrict you. We're not going to (laughs) restrict you. You've been very good
2: so far. Uh, I've done so well. Oh, my God. You have done so well. (laughs) So she was like, this is incredible. Like, it's nothing short of miraculous, you know, pretty much the words Mm. that I would use to describe myself. You know, like, love
0: that.
2: like, holy fucking shit, you know, she was sitting swearing herself and I was swearing, we were all swearing. My partner at the time wasn't there because I didn't want her to hear anything too yeah. nitty-gritty. Uh, I wanted to kind of preserve the relationship a little bit. That's to be continued on another podcast, I'm yeah. sure. yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh, hang on a minute. Oh, yeah, the journey to animal-assisted therapy... So well, that's became, fine. Yep. I became a foster mom. Yes. Um, me and my partner at the time, my wife, we became foster parents, and it was the best thing in the absolute world. It was Aww. the most incredible journey. Sadly, I'd been retriggered by the files being pulled. Yeah. Um, yeah. But that's okay. You know, I'm high functioning, and uh, so having these. It's beautiful experiences with kids and, um, you know, teenagers as well. I wanted teenagers because they're the ones that seem to get forgotten. Um, And so this lad came along who couldn't communicate very well. Um, In fact, mostly when he communicated it, he would bark. Um, And it instantly resonated with me as an intuitive worker, that this kind of level of communication is deep trauma. You know, Ooh. it was a bit like me. When I went into care, I didn't know how to communicate with anybody. I didn't know how to use a knife and fork. I was practically raised by my dog, you know, because it was the only one that gave me unconditional love. Ooh. So it all ties in. And so, you know, the lad blesses are my little sapling, He still sticks around now. Um, He would steal because he felt like he was never going to eat enough. Um, He'd gone very hungry as a kid. And it didn't matter how many times I stocked up the cupboards and stocked up the fridge, he still felt like he was going to go hungry. Mm. Um, So I made up a story. There was a, a massive pack of Snicker bars, I think, and they'd all gotten eaten, and I was like, I think Ruby might have taken the snicker bars and it kind of gave him an in to communicate with me about the fact that, you know, Ruby the dog at the time had stolen the snicker bars, you know, and it was like, yeah, she's going to get lardy doing that, you know, and this beautiful, incredible kind of made up story came from him, but it was a story that wasn't involving barking. And it was absolutely stunning. And this one morning, he was not going to go to school. I'm not going to effing school. You know, you're C U N T, you're this, you're that, you know, chuff off type stuff. And it, I kind of tried figuring out what it was because usually he was all right with going and all of that. And he didn't know how to tie his tie and he didn't want to, he didn't know how to ask me how to do that. So, I got his tie feeling that it could be that. If I'm wrong, I'm wrong. It don't matter. You take a chance, don't you? Yeah. So I got his tie and I wrapped it around the dog, obviously not to strangle the dog or anything (laughs) like that. No (laughs) dogs were armed by tying a tie. (laughs) And, (laughs) And so he was tying this tie and I was showing him, not because I was showing him, I was saying, this is the way Ruby likes to have her tie tied. So there's no... Pulling him down. There's no. Don't be daft. There's no. (laughs) What What you're playing at? It was like he honestly couldn't tell me, and I could feel this from him because I've been there myself. So I taught a lad how to tie his tie by tying the tie on my dog. That was the start of me becoming an animal assisted therapist. You know, and obviously working in schools, the dog would all you know come with me a lot of the time. There'd be kids there that. I haven't read for two, three years, Mm. uh, too scared to read. And I'd sit there and I'd say, well, you know, you don't need to read to me, read to the dog. She loves a good story. You know, I mean, I'm sitting here because I'm her handler and that's it really. But obviously it's more to that. Yeah, I know know the process. and, And then I became qualified in it. And when I left working at the school because I just... I couldn't manage the injustice of the system. So I thought, right, time to go freelance. Um, So I went freelance and this is what I set up to do. And it was just absolutely stunning. And there's a lot of kids that I see now. They're very much like my foster lad or very much like me when I was a kid, uh, struggling to communicate, riddled with anxiety, reactions of trauma. And... Going out on a dog walk, maybe talking indirectly with Honey's now my dog. Um, you know, if they can't say, Oh dear, I've stolen a Snicker bar, they can say, How Honey has stolen a Snicker bar. And we can talk about stealing and, and wondering and exploring, Well, I wonder why she felt the need to do that. You know, and then sooner or later, the young person's able to say, it was me that stole the Snicker bar, you know? And when I think about back to my foster lad, he stopped stealing in the end because he learned how to communicate. He was hungry uh, mm-hmm. without being scared about it. It's quite stunning. It gives me goosebumps just oh. even talking about it. I love just, it. It's
1: it's a lovely, lovely story. And it, When you told that um, to us, when we met up with you, it just it just stuck with me. So and uh, been speaking about you since mm-hmm. um, because uh, it's those stories are wonderful. Thank you, Rachel.
0: How do you train Rachel as an animal assisted therapist? What is the process? Just in case someone listening would like also to do something like this.
2: Well, as always, as a as a ex care leaver or a care leaver, nothing comes quickly or easily or simply. <laughs> I often am not able to take, I can see a smile there, I'm not <laughs> able to take the first route. What would be the first route? What would have been my ideal way to train for this would be to go to university and to get qualification in that way so that it could grow as more than just being a, a, a animal-assisted therapist or practitioner in that way. But unfortunately, I was in witness protection. Mm-hmm. I had to leave the school. My GCSEs were invigilated by social workers. I passed my GCSEs, but I can't show how I've passed my GCSEs because I'm no longer that name. Right. You know, and yeah. Because if I were to get in contact and show the proof of change of name, then I'd be mm-hmm. putting myself at risk in an yeah. area where I'm not allowed to be or not where I'm not allowed. That's very much like a child would say, Um where, where you're not safe. Where it's just not safe. Yeah, yeah. yeah, absolutely. So, um. So because of the unable to show GCSEs, because of the sheer stubbornness of the inequality of that, I won't retake my GCSEs. Right. Um. So the way I've gone through it is doing a diploma. Um. So I did. So obviously I've got. The 20 odd years of experience of working with kids. Mm-hmm. I've done nuggets of training here and there through Tavistock, and, you know, Caldecott, all of those kind of places, like the therapeutic background stuff. Um, and a lot of like working in a therapeutic school and a therapeutic children's home. And with that background, along with my own in- intuition and a diploma, that pretty much seals the deal yeah um, so it, it's not straightforward I mean for people for Joe blogs, you know I would and if you've got the opportunity and the privilege I would totally go down the route of getting a degree and then further educating yourself in animal assisted therapy or canine assisted um, but for me obviously it's it's never going to be an easy route like that unless somebody on here that hears this podcast would like to find that set, then obviously I'll go for that
0: Yeah, but you know what, Rachel, what's really insightful is that many victims and survivors of child sexual abuse exploitation, we all have taken circuitous routes through our (laughs) education because of what we've been through, because we couldn't learn maybe at the time, maybe we couldn't pass exams, um, whatever the reason is, often it takes us a lot longer to where we want to get to, but we do get there.
2: Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think the only place that seems to discriminate against care leavers the most is education and further education. You know, and I can understand it. And I understand the lack of knowledge around it. Uh, you know, I'd love to be a part of educating in that way so that the discrimination stops. You know, I mean, when I think of all of the labels that I've got slapped on me, uh, mm. mental health uh, like PTSD I had OCD at one stage anxiety disorder survivor of CSE child sexual exploitation survivor of child sexual abuse survivor of the care system care leaver, gay yeah. person you name it I've got a label that slaps on me I've got more labels than you know the Levi's shop down the road but <clears throat> the one that I get discriminated against the most is being a care leaver. and it's still th-
0: happening now yeah I think it's- that's a podcast all in itself isn't it Beverly where we could with Rachel really look at um, the care system from both yeah. your perspectives um, and look at the failings of social care where do they? Where have they gone wrong? Where have they gone right? And what, from Rachel's perspective, seeing that she's working in that area, what can they do better going forward? But I think that needs a lot of time, just to to discuss that.
1: Absolutely, so, especially as we 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 do need to start wrapping
0: up soon. Oh, okay, I know. So, I'm trying not to be too much of a timekeeper, so but we have really overrun. Let Let's just then leave. That block for another podcast. But before we go, let's just wrap up this um, podcast. Um, Rachel, obviously, I spoke to you about you being in a same sex relationship, and um, we've not touched upon this yet in our podcast because Bev and I, we're both heterosexual. Um, so we haven't had that experience ourselves. But I wanted to sort of like just speak to you about being in a same-sex relationship. And do you feel that any of the abuse that you'd gone through um, impacted that decision? Or was it just the way that you was anyway? And it's sorry if that's come weird. out
2: wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry about it. I think we can get so caught up yeah. I'm trying to get it right. The, the questions don't come out I'd rather yeah. have curiosity you know and or like I'd rather be able to raise an awareness so from my perspective and I'm sure it's different for different people mm-hmm. from my perspective I'd say that you know a report was written on me when I was a kid in care when I was in the kids home and the report read right hey, Rachel will never be able to have any kind of interpersonal relationship with anybody. Rachel will end up in prison. Rachel may end up uh, in addiction or whatever, and on and on and on it goes. Obviously that letter is no longer with me. Um, So I would say that abuse hasn't affected my sexuality. I think I didn't know really about sexuality. I just knew that people abused me and, you know, raped me and kind mm-hmm. of talked with me. Um, so I didn't know about sexuality, yeah. sadly, until I was 17, 17, 18, where I was out on my own. Mm. But I was abused by both men and women. Women, right. So I would say that it didn't have any effect on my sexuality. Mm. Um, I've heard it in the other ways, like people feeling like they might be gay because it was abused by a bloke or because yeah. they were abused by a woman, like same sex. Yeah. Um, I was abused by both. And to be honest with you, it it appalled me the most. It was the last thing that I was able to disclose was being sexually abused by a woman. And it yeah. still makes me shiver now. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know... I'm definitely a dyke, so. (laughs) Right, and that's Rachel's
0: terminology, and she's able to express that exactly how she wants. Um, If you don't identify as one of that word, then that's fine, but that's Rachel's word. Um, Rachel, how did you know that you was a lesbian?
2: Sadly, it came out. (laughs) Oh, oh, yes. (laughs) It was. Uh, Sadly, it came as a result of being abused by a member of staff and a kids' home. Oh right, e- okay. Equally, um, you know, a lot of people, a lot of people were very much like, "Don't knock, don't knock it till you tried it." Right? Do you know what I mean? So, yeah. like, turn, have a bloke, have a woman, figure out your sexuality, like that. And I was like, well, I think it's women, but okay. You know, and so I I went with a bloke who's absolutely lovely, you know, and it just wasn't my cup of tea, really. So okay, I mean- but you <laughs> sort of had to like work it out for you for yourself
0: through your own experiences as an adult. Yeah, absolutely.
2: Like, um, it was getting down to because I was still quite unwell. You know, when I think about PTSD and trauma responses, yeah, you know, I still had the scars quite prevalent yeah. on me and like even to physically look at. So it really wasn't something that I was happy to go down too much. But when I, when I did get a little bit of freedom and a bit of self-worth and confidence, I had a little dabble in all areas. And I realised that I was this way inclined. <laughs> yeah,
0: and there's nothing wrong with that at all. Absolutely. Um, um, what was I going to say to you? Um, obviously, you've you've told us in past conversations that you had a, a longer-term relationship that didn't work out for you. And then now you're in a new relationship. Can you tell us um, why it didn't work out in your long-term relationship? What wasn't there? that you may have now
2: because you said that your
0: relationships are completely different
2: it it was a bit of a complex ending but Mm -hmm. what I'd say is the main the main thing was was as a result of becoming a parent the PTSD became re-triggered yeah Um, so like I continue to be a parent and I still do that now but uh the ptsd i was such a strong person i mean i am a strong person but at the point with uh my wife at the time i was this strong together um activist kind of fighter for all the good and justice and all of that and then i was this pile of mush of somebody feeling like people are walking up the stairs and they're going to kill me Mm -hmm. um And it was really, really hard for my wife at the time to get her head around it. Mm. She just couldn't. And I I totally understand, you know, at the time I was kind of raging about it, but I understand why that is so hard because it's like, equally, I didn't tell her a massive amount of my past because I didn't know how to. You know, I'd not done the work on it and I didn't know how to, so... Thank God I found a way, you know. And so relationship now, I'm in a fairly new relationship and I'm doing doing—I'm doing it differently, you know. I kind of, when it comes down to relationships, gay or straight or whatever, I just think to myself, what is it that I'm bringing to the relationship rather than concentrating on what's not getting brought to me? Absolutely. You know? Yeah. And what I'm bringing to the relationship is authenticity. And yeah meaning and all of that and a lot more obviously my charm my wit <laughs> uh, and your sense of humor
1: which goes a long long way and your
2: lovely warm heart Rachel
1: because we really do need to wrap oh, up Beverly, I know, being
0: a pain,
1: but we'll the people listening will be cut off so we'll definitely oh, do okay. a follow-up and also Ooh, yeah. it's being mindful of Rachel herself for self care. Of course, yeah. I just want to reiterate, Rachel, something that you said, and I'm really pleased because being a caregiver, I absolutely hear about all the prejudice and all the rest of it. And it was one of the things that I hid for a long, long time, and I know many people still do. Um, I am in my late 50s, 60 next year, and I am at university now, Open University, and they also have support. For care leavers which is fantastic so i'll talk to you about that separately outside for the podcast but anyone thinking about studying um yeah i struggle as well at times so i will and the, and the finance that's available etc to support um i'll help you and give you the information one last thing because i'm a big thing i'm a big person on self-care as chris tuck is are you going to ask it chris
0: no, I was just going to say, I thought we was wrapping this up, but hey-ho. We are. <laughs> now I was just going to say, what one thing
1: do you do for yourself every day, Rachel, that makes you feel loved and nurtured?
2: I always walk my dog. So even before I do the therapy or go out and save the world, if you like, I always yeah. go and have a little bit of time off and down the beach and walk the dog.
1: Fantastic. Yeah.
2: Well, sad to say it's goodbye for me okay all
1: right what about you we'll definitely us?
0: have rachel back on yes we will. too much else to discuss um my um yeah i just want to thank you rachel for being open honest and um just authentic because uh, i think that people learn a lot from us just you know just sharing
1: absolutely and a big thank you and your last thoughts you can finish off today Rachel what's your last thought that you'd like to share with us as you as we finish
2: my last thought (laughs) I don't know if I've ever had a last thought but (laughs) what I'm thinking is in the moment is I just hope that somebody might get something from this whether a worker or whether a survivor you know like there's a lot to be said about shared experiences and you know, I'm hoping that I've not fluffed it up too much, and I can come back next time and have a good old natter again. You're more yeah, than welcome. You. You're more than welcome. And it's time right. to
1: say goodbye for okay.
0: now. Au revoir. Au revoir, okay. everybody. See you soon. Bye.